When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel on New Books Network. I'm Takeshi Morisato. Today, I'll be talking to James Heisek, who is the author of Of Gods and Minds, In Search of a Theological Commons, a book that was published in 2019 by Chisokudo Publications. Hello, Jim. Uh, good morning, Takeshi. Nice to hear your voice. Good morning to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm in based in Europe and you're based in Japan, so it's a good evening to you. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this interview. Um, we are very excited to talk to you about your new book on religion and philosophy, which has a great number of references to Japanese philosophy, which I specialize in. Uh, but before getting into it, I would like to start with this big question about you. Um, you've been working in this field so, so long, so, uh, and you probably received these questions many times, and you have very different versions of the answer. But I'd like you to take as much time you need to answer this question. Um, could you introduce yourself by telling us about your career, research, and how you are involved with this field of um, Japanese philosophy, uh, Japanese religions, and philosophy of religion and theology and all these relevant fields? Ooh, hmm. yes, well, <laughs> where, where to begin? Um, yeah, uh, maybe a couple of different me, episodes and how you end up in the uh, field of Japanese philosophy. Yeah, and yeah. just to make a short, a long story very short, um, let me say first that I was drawn to philosophy um, not by its questions or its methods, but by a few teachers in university who ask those questions and use those methods uh, as if their lives depended on it. I'm afraid I've never lived up to their image of what a philosopher is, but I'm grateful for their teaching and for getting me going. Um, um, I studied philosophy and religion formally in the United States and England, and after graduation from Cambridge, divided my time for several years between graduate schools in the United States and Latin America where I taught mainly philosophy and myth and symbolic theory. And then in 1976, I was invited to Japan to help 
begin the Nanzan Institute for Religion and Culture in the city of Nagoya, Japan. And then I retired from there in 2013. Uh, oh my, that's already eight years. But I continue to go there every day and carry on many of the projects that I've collaborated with over the years. Mm. As I have to say, as, as I look back over some 45 years in Japan, I count it um, a great blessing that I've been surrounded by people who knew more than me about so many things, who kept my education going, and who kept me alert to a world much wider than my initial interests in academic specializations. Without that, I would have continued to specialize in the things that I carried with me when I first came. Do you feel, uh, maybe this is a question to you as this sort of pioneer in the field of Japanese philosophy, did you feel that there was a sort of the shift uh, in the course of your education from, let's say, your formal education in the European um, Anglo-European religion and philosophy to this sort of radical shift to the Japanese philosophy and religion, or there's a sort of like a continuous um, methodological approach or some sort of this existential attitude that you learn from your teachers? Oh, gee, that's a that's an interesting question. I've never really thought about that too much. Um, I think because um, of Jan van Bracht who was the first director of the Institute, that the transition was much smoother than it would have been otherwise. And he introduced me not by throwing me into the field, but by asking me to translate works by people who were already trying to bridge, um, to build bridges between Japanese and Western philosophy. The works were not um, all that sophisticated by today's standards, but they made it um, relatively easy for me. On the other hand, when he and I dealt personally with um, things I was thinking or things I was writing or translating, he was always very strict with me and drove me back to the books to read the original texts. So in that sense, it was like being thrown back into graduate school. But given the environment, um, um, it, was a, it was a blessing and um, something I didn't really find uh, uh, all that difficult. Mm-hmm. So do you feel also, um, because of this community of scholars around you that are already working in the field of this bridging the gap between Eastern and Western philosophy, there is tendency not to specialize? As you described it, there's a tendency to actually expand your horizons of interest or um, was that the typical tendency among the scholars ah, that you actually you know, associate with? Uh, yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, when, when you go to graduate school, normally they ask you to choose a specific author and focus on a specific topic. And there's always the danger of being so specialized that um, afterwards it's harder to, to broaden out. But in, um, in the case of my education in Japanese philosophy, it was the other way around. I was asked to read as broadly as I possibly could. So I was uh, comparing things across authors from, from the very first. Um, so it was in that sense, it was unlike a graduate school. Yeah, actually, the even in the specialized academic works today, it's just usually ask you to do one task and one task excellently, uh, better than anybody else. But 
that's the, usually the kind of the tendency that we observe in the field of academia. Um, but I think you can tell from the title of your book, <laughs> the uh, of gods and minds. It's it's already expansive uh, theme that you're actually tackling with this book, and this this is. Um, um, my understanding is a compilation of different essays that you have written in the course of, of, your, of your career. But the first thing I'd like to ask you is, is this, like, how did you come to write this book? Um, and then tell us about the origin of your ideas and what drove you to write this book. Um, because this book is very easy to read. It's very sim- simple in, in a way. There's clear uh, drive toward one goal. Uh, but at the same time, it's so expansive that I I wonder how many specialists of philosophy or religion and uh, especially specialists in the field of theology or religious studies will be able to just, you know, um, take it without feeling some sort of, a, I don't know, a- academic allergic reaction. <laughs> it's like some sort of a response to this um, theme. So can you tell us about like how that your involvement with the field of Japanese philosophy and Japanese religions led to writing this book? Huh. Um, actually, the book is the, um, is the record of a series of lectures I gave at Boston College called the Duffy Lectures. And it was, it was delivered to a, a theological um, uh, department with people from other departments in attendance and therefore, I had to pick a question that was um, of interest to theologians. And I wasn't really able to choose Japanese philosophy or any aspect of it as a focus. I wanted to find something that would draw Japanese philosophy in um, to the, um, what do we say, peripherally. And why? how uh, the origins of the ideas? Yes, well... Um, as I explained in the preface, I was first drawn to the idea of God as a philosophical problem, as a, as a multifaceted and multilayered philosophical problem. When, um, as an undergraduate, reading the work of the Italian philosopher Cornelio Fabro, um, throughout my life I've remained in awe of his achievement, but our starting points were very different. Um, unlike Fabro, in most of Western philosophy, I didn't want to start from the question, does God exist, or what is God, but rather the question, why gods at all? Um, asking it that way made it, um, made it less questionable, more natural, if you will, to bring in the poets, the artists, the mystics, the non-monotheistic philosophies of the East uh, into the discussion. And I know that some eater, uh, readers may ask, well, why doesn't he just give a straight answer to his own question? Why gods at all? What are gods doing in minds? And the reason is um, that it's not a straight question. That, that This was the burden of proof I took uh, in trying to describe um, this approach to theologians and to students of theology and students of other religions, to demonstrate the demand for a straight question about God, has it all wrong? So I didn't want to start out either. I'm trying to thread a single argument through the book. That would be like like herding cats. I, I roamed around the question, what are gods doing in minds, in, in search of some 
um, dominant patterns of thought, um, recording what I saw, questioning it, and every so often climb a hill to see the landscape from higher up. That's where you, that meadow of flowers borders on the forest where the river bends into the sea. But when you're up there, you cannot smell the flowers or hear the rustle of leaves or the rush of the water. So this movement between the concrete and the abstract runs through the book, and that may make it confusing as well. But in the end, um, my, my goal was not, to, was not to, to make a map, but to explore territory. So none of the dominant patterns of thought about God, the skeletal ideas, I call them, um, was enough. Uh, enough by itself or enough to really exclude any of the others. There wasn't one single theory that would um, lord it over the others. So yes, I didn't have a clear thesis from which I proceeded deductively, and I didn't decide not to have one. Uh, I would stop from time to time to gather my thoughts into a sentence or two. Um, it's like when you look at an impressionist it's much more painting. Like it's the not challenging. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was saying uh, it seems to me it's much like an impressionist painting. It's not that there's no logic behind it, simply because it doesn't look like the world we're used to. What's depicted is not something that could have been stated state straightforwardly, irrationally, or um, in, in clear mirroring. That would have been too much. There would have been too much hidden from view. Uh, so if there's anything I didn't want to do, it was to hide any part of the picture just so I could arrive at a clear conclusion. But I'm sorry, I interrupted your question. <laughs> No, no, no. I think that's one of the uh, one of the most significant part of this book uh, is to precisely the reframing the question of the importance of the divine absolute. Um, for instance, the you know the philosophy of religion um, and theology that actually has in that has been embedded in this sort of Judeo-Christian monotheistic tradition has a tendency to talk about the existence of God as a single object of thought or single concept or single, uh, some sort of, um, how should I say, icon to which we construct our structural values. But this book is basically saying that maybe we shouldn't ask that questions and we should actually step back from that sort of assumption that, what, assumption that there is or is not the divine absolute, but let's just ask the question of why do we even have to ask this question in the first place? Mm -hmm. So I think he yeah. has this sort of monumental, it's a step back, but also like pushing the um, field forward into a more philosophical direction. Um, and also successfully, I think you're positioning yourself as somewhere in between philosophy and theology uh, in that regard. Instead of just accepting the one tradition uh, as it's done in theology, um, and just dismissing the entire religious traditions as it's usually done from the side of philosophy, you're sort mm -hmm. of occupying between um, philosophy and theology in this book. Um, how was the response from the theology students at the Boston College? Uh, I'm a little curious about this um, method that you took. Do they well, appreciate actually, your I, I approach think... to this sort of in-between? Yeah. Uh, I think if I had been a little more forthright in the way in which you speak, in other words, to find a middle ground between philosophy and theology, a kind of way for the two to dialogue, it would have been more familiar to them. But what I did was try to, to create the idea of a theological commons, that is to say, um, um, a, 
a wealth of ideas from a variety of traditions that could be used not to answer a question that any particular tradition asks, but one that um, um, is, is, requires the resources of more than one tradition to answer. So it, as you said at the beginning, it was a bit of a challenge for some of the students. But after the first session, the, the person who, uh, Dr. Katrin Cornil, who arranged for the lectures, asked me to spend um, uh, an hour or two each week before the next lecture so the students could ask questions and I could attempt to answer them, to weave the answers into the, the lecture itself. And that was immensely helpful to me um, because I was asking, I didn't want to be asking questions or, uh, sorry, I didn't want to be answering questions that, that they weren't asking. So I had to find a way to paraphrase to uh, um, the questions that they were asking into the framework of the, of the lectures themselves. Mm-hmm. Were they generally philosophical questions or, or, or did you find them has this sort of a heavy burden as in, in the field of theology and religious studies or was it more uplifting precisely because of the thesis that you're presenting? Um, maybe this is a little bit pedagogical question, but I'm very interested in this interaction between your book and classroom setting. Yes. Um, actually, I expected exactly exactly that. I expected some students to uh, have theological objections. That it's a, it's a Christian Catholic Jesuit university. And the department is, is a department of theology of religion. So there are people studying Judaism and Eastern um, Tibetan religion, um, uh, studying um, Buddhism and so forth. Um, so they already are, are very open-minded about these things. But I expected them at some point to say, but as a Christian, what do you, what do you really believe or how do you really come down on this? And um, actually, it never, it never came to that. And I was so disappointed in a way. Um, not, not that I had a clear answer I wanted to give, but I was kind of disappointed that I hadn't, um, hadn't uh, threatened that. That in the final lecture, <clears throat> when somebody asked a question about um, the encounter with God or something. And um, no, I know what it was. We were talking about um, the, a personal idea of God versus an impersonal idea. And I said at one point in our question and answers, which were rather extensive, so it was um, uh, really good for me. I said at one point that I I never had any idea what it meant to have a personal encounter or personal relationship with Jesus, which is standard in the vocabulary of, of Christian believers. But I told them um, everything that I understand as person is absent somebody whose facial expressions I can read, somebody whose voice inflects, somebody who uh, has, a, has a history, somebody who interrupts me when I'm talking. These are all how I understand a personal encounter. I think you've just destroyed the notion of person if you apply it to what you happen to believe or think or idealize about the person of Jesus. And I thought that would be an occasion for um, a bit of a blow up, but People just sort of let it pass. I'm not sure if it's uh, over tolerance or, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, nothing more. So, 
I do, I do want to ask this. Perhaps I could be a little bit more uh, combatant in this interview, <laughs> so I can take a little bit of the <laughs> Go ahead. I'm theological you, stance yes. to. <laughs> yeah, so I can give you a little bit of spark to, you know, challenge your book, but at the same time highlight one of the best part of the book. I mean, I think from the theological perspective, in a way, you will have this discussion of. Actually, this is a problem for both sides of philosophy and theology. So I'm just going to accept that there is a distinction between philosophy and theology or religious studies. So philosophers on the one hand, what we can do is a critical study of the ways in which our mind works and how we understand the world. And then in, in that framework, whether or not necessary for us to actually posit the notion of God, that's the purely atheistic standpoint that the philosophers usually take. And then you have theological, theological and religious studies just accept that there are a number of religions that exist in the world and just anthropologically studying these religions or just studying the tradition of theology. So you have massive gap between philosophy and uh, theology slash religious studies. But your book title, the very title of Gods and Minds, are incredibly challenging for both camps. <laughs> like, first of all, I think the philosophers are driving towards some sort of a unified understanding of reality that we can comprehensively understand and the ground our existence. And then we ask this question of whether or not it's necessary for us to actually posit this first principle that grounds them. Um, theological and religious studies, they do just accept that there are a plurality of different religions, but at the same time, if you pay attention to each doctrine, it seems to imply that one of them have to be right. You know, it's like, it, it seems like interreligious dialogues can be done at the periphery of the religious studies, but in the midst of the doctrine of each religion, it's very difficult to accept there are many uh, different ways to do the same thing. Um, so what was the intention behind you to like posit this as a title? Um, and why does it have to be plural? Ooh, um First of all, I think that the the common ground, or the theological commons, as I call it, um, lies in um, symbolic thought, I, that, which can be images, it can also be ideas, it can be stories, myths, but symbolic thought, which are these inexhaustible patterns of, of thinking or or painting, or, or writing poetry, but these inexhaustibly intelligible uh, symbols, which are not interpreted into anything literal, which are not in, interpreted away, so explained, given a meaning, and then you don't need the symbol anymore, but they are, by their nature, inexhaustible, and God is the, the supreme form of it, in, in Western philosophy, at least. That. Uh, but the, there's a difference between the way um, philosophy and theology deals with this symbol. Philosophy attempts to deal with it in terms of, um, well, I shouldn't say philosophy, it's it's too broad a field. But from my point of view, it, it attempts to deal with it um, as a way to understand the human and um, and the natural world. Whereas in, in theology, what makes um, um, a symbol religious is that it's a revealed symbol. It's a kind of seepage into our world from, a, from another world. 
Now, that's, uh, that's a, a clear difference between theology and philosophy in the Western tradition, um, in, uh, at least in the Western tradition uh, above ground, the Orthodox tradition. However, once we get into the world of the mysticism, the, the hermetic and pseudo-hermetic traditions, um, into uh, the Gnostic and alchemical traditions, which are the, the underbelly of the Christian tradition and, and essential to it, we find ourselves in a position very much like we find in the in the East, where this idea of the seepage from a from another world into this world is not necessary for a symbol to become sacred. So to, to jump on, why do we have to speak of gods um, in in the West when usually there's sim- uh, a single god? I, I wanted to I wanted to be universal. I wanted to ask a question that that ranged across traditions, but not in the sense of a uniform definition, but in the sense of a broadly uh, pluriform cosmos. And it seemed to be, to me, the only way to be fair to the rich variety of, of images, symbolic images of the gods, was to be universal without being uniform. I didn't mean to have the definition of God die the death of a thousand qualifications, but to have it live the life of a thousand qualifications. So when it comes to a religious idea like God, it wasn't the universality of the idea's essential content, but the universality of the reach and nature of its relational particularity. And to do this, I sought universality not in any particular idea of the gods or some abstracted set of overlapping attributes, but rather in the unanswerable but unanswerable but irrepressible questions that human nature drives us to. So the gods are images of those questions and the desire for answers. This is um, this is the universality of the question, what are gods doing in mind? And it's, it's one of those questions that, it, one of those um, uh, qualities that few ideas drive us to. Uh, that's the great disclaimer that all great theologies make from the starting point for doctrinal aberrations of mystical thought. Uh, to put it in other words, Western Christianity, which is still the only acceptable form of Christianity as far as the headquarters of the established churches are concerned, Western Christianity sees grace and ultimate truth as this revelation of divine goodness from a transcendent realm beyond, into the lives here and now of believers. In Japan, everything is enthused. Everything is full of gods, from the natural world to the human. And it's enthused uh, just as it is. Jinen honi. It's not in the first place a moral dictum about living by faith. It's a fundamental fact of reality. Everything lives by a higher or other power. And living by self-power is not um, a choice, it's an illusion. This is the true universality towards which I think our ideas of God um, incline us. Mm-hmm. I see. So this universal but not uniformity, I think it's very um, difficult for uh, philosophers and yeah, I, I'm not. I can't really account for theologians in this account, but definitely very difficult for philosophers to accept this kind of notion of concrete universal that is not uniform. Um, 
I think a lot of times concrete universal has a tendency to determine itself in a very uniformity or some sort of like comprehensive whole. And whether or not that principle of understanding is scientific or otherwise is always questionable, but it's safe to say from uh, Anglo-European philosophy, it has very scientific drive of autonomy or reason. It's trying to construct the intelligible structure of the world. How do we, I guess, explain that non-uniform, diversify universality to minds of philosophers today? <laughs> it's, just, it's just my personal question. How do we actually show them that this is actually what's happening with this concept of universal that you're working with? Is it like paying attention to the history or, as you said, it's almost like walking in the path of beautiful forest um, in, or in nature? I mean, I think all great philosophies of individuals, but then also even all um, intellectual traditions have some idea of of the universal. Um, it and those ideas are always, always um, radically plural, um, particular, um, even if they're not recognized to be such. But the idea is to recognize that this drive to be universal is um, a hopeless quest to be truly universal, to have ideas that transcend all of time and all of space and all of history. But it's something that each culture, each intellectual tradition strives for. And to recognize a plurality of forms, what I call the relational particularity of different universals, is one of our ways we have of seeing through the particularity of our own um, attempts to be to be universal. I mean, for example, oh, this would take us way afield, but I think the the great universalist of the nineteenth century was Hegel, and Hegel's attempt to uh, structure consciousness in such a way that it absorbed all of history. And then the Japanese came along, and I suppose not just the Japanese, uh, but. Um, they read Hegel and said, well, it doesn't work um, in, in, in our <laughs> right. situation, in our condition. They mm -hmm. studied it, but it, but it simply simply doesn't function. Um, the same way that uh, Kant's universals for uh, trans, um, 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 uh, categories um, worked for Newtonian science, but then uh, the Neo-Kantians started looking at culture and the generation of meaning, and they said that has no effect on it at all. The cultural forms that control our thought are not universal. They're, in fact, changing all the times, and they change from culture to culture. What's universal is that they are always changing, that they're always a relational particularity, as opposed to just an isolated, created particularity that can be made uniform uh, for the whole world. Yeah. To complement this point, I think there are interesting, really subtle, but also prominent presence of Japanese thinkers and other voices from modern Greece and Mexico, among others, in, in your book. Um, you know, in typically in, in the history of philosophy, you study from ancient Greek to contemporary continental philosophy, but you don't really read contemporary Greek philosophy or literature, for that matter. Uh, also, the Mexican thinkers are completely out of uh, canon, you know, the typical program in the history of philosophy program. And also, I think the Japanese thinkers are suffering from the same fate. But why, why, what, 
why did you decide to incorporate these thinkers? Do you think it's important to take them into consideration in our discussion of gods and minds? Mm. Mm. Well, I, I think of two answers, but both of them are really very simple. First, um, these are some of the voices that influence my own thinking on the problem of what gods are doing in minds. Uh, second, their, their particularities, um, I think, demonstrate the universal relevance of the problem. Whether the gods are seen as flowerings of the mind, working at its best and highest powers, or if they're seen as infections that dim the powers of the mind. We all know that it's not just the German mind, the Mexican mind, the Japanese mind, but all minds that show that problem across time and, and languages and cultures. So as assuredly as we share the structure of perceiving the world through five senses um, with the same anatomical structure, we human beings, um, uh, our minds are structured to produce images of a world beyond our reach and confuse us when we try to account for how those images came about and what purpose they serve. That, that, yeah, that, that's pretty much what I wanted to show was that our minds are structured similarly to produce images of a world beyond our reach and to confuse us when we can't reach that world or account for why those questions came about or what, what possible purpose they could have. It's the, the unanswerability and yet the driving desire to ask the question that God highlights. It doesn't tell us so much who God is or what God is, but it highlights something um, in, in human nature. And mm -hmm. so, to go do back you think to the these question, different cultures? Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, I'm finished. Yes. No, the I'm going to add a few um, questions to your answer. But the do, do you think these different cultural traditions that are you touched on in this book are manifesting that sort of drive and unanswerability of the question of gods in in our minds differently? Do, do you feel like modern Greek or Mexican philosophy? highlights things about this relational particularity in a different way than Japanese thinkers. Um, because you, you seem to be saying that these different cultures are driving at the same point, but I'm wondering if there are any differences between them. Oh, well, uh, two things. First of all, um, the, 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 questions, the question I was asking about why we are driven to produce these images and ask these unanswerable questions um, that uh, that's not um, that's not what I was drawing from from other traditions. It was rather the um, the lenses I was using to read their traditions. So I would see them um, uh, through this lens, um, if you will. It was a bias, a, a question that um, a point of view that I bought, brought to to my reading of of them. And there are always hints that people are aware of the unanswerable question, the hopeless quest, uh, as, as Whitehead liked to call it. Um, but yes, um, always always something different, um, always. Uh, yes, it's like a painter, you know, the same scene painted differently by, by, by different people. They all see something that others didn't see. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I think... Um... It, it's it's just to take tackle the modern Greek and the Mexican philosophers or thinkers in within the same book, but you also incorporate the classical 
uh, Judeo-Christian tradition as well as Japanese thinkers. So it's it's incredibly rich, almost like a museum of this <laughs> unanswerable question about gods in different um, particular relationality or relational particularity that you called it in the different cultures. Um, but you, you find it very important to talk about these discussions in, in the context of philosophy, religion, theology, despite the fact that these are not typical materials to be examined in these disciplines, right? Yes, that, that was my idea. That was the idea that I put in the subtitle, and then it's a search for a theological commons. And commons means a common source, uh, common resources. That first of all, you don't have to be an expert um, in in all of these different areas in order to use their resources in, intelligently and reasonably. Um, and yeah, and I think is, there's uh, something in- interesting about these programs where they teach philosophy, religion, and theology and religious studies. Oftentimes, these programs, especially in Europe, consist of many international students from diverse cultural backgrounds. Um, but instructors have a tendency to focus on single tradition. Um, so there's always like a conflict between students and instructors when they talk about religious studies and, and, and um, or at least in my personal experience. So I think some of the students would be encouraged to pay attention to their own intellectual and cultural traditions and see what they can actually offer to that sort of discussion about religion. And of course, you're occupying the space between philosophy and theology, so it's not easy place to be. But I think one of the thing in your book um, that it's probably the most important topic in, in, in 21st century human civilization around the world and probably the least appreciated uh, in, in, in terms of academia as well as intellectual discussion is this what you mentioned in your book as a care of an earth. So the sort of environmental care the earth as, as abused by human civilization and devalued by organized religion, as well as, I think, metaphysics and science, human civilization that actually prides in its technological advancement and scientific knowledge. Um, I have many questions about this care of an earth that you proposed as one of the most important drive for um, answering this question of gods and minds. Um, now, question number one, how do you respond to the criticism that religions and philosophies are the main culprit for the culprit for the serious negligence and ecological abuse? How do you respond to that? I'm not sure I'd blame uh, philosophies and religions in general for ecological disasters. Uh, for that, um, I think we should look at the industrial and financial structures that so deeply work their way into the common sense of modern civilization, the damage they were doing became invisible to us. But once alerted to this epidemic of common nonsense, it seems to me that our philosophies and religions need to find a more productive way of responding. So allowing um, each individual tradition to translate the problem into its own vocabulary and its own system of thought or belief, and then uh, deal it out for internal consumption. This marginalizes a question that, that should be front and center. It is the uh, commons for philosophy and theology. This it, it doesn't make sense to create an ecological branch to a given tradition of thought. 
so we have um, philosophy, and then um, one of the courses in philosophy is um, ecological ethics, or one of the courses in theology is um, stewardship of the earth. This is giving a branch to a question that, if not answered, get, gets rid of um, human civilization. And when you when you create a, a branch like this to a given tradition, it not only cuts it off from other tradition, it creates its own experts and representatives who then carry that over to people in other branches at conferences. The, the religions and uh, th this is not the way to, to reach the common nonsense. We need to reach more deeply into our common humanity. And I believe that, that um, the questions to which the images of God are answers also include questions about the transcendence of the natural world, which can be the impetus for a mass conversion of common sense. So it's not only not only a healthy planet, um, which is a, a first truly universal question on which all religions and philosophies can agree. For the first time in history, we have a question that all religions can agree upon in its phrasing. The, the search for a healthy planet. Without it, we wouldn't even have religions and philosophies. The survival of mind depends on the survival of the planet. I, 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 could there be anything more demanding of a relational particularity of all our traditions of thought than a question like that? And yet we have turned it into a one more specialization. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you go to a typical philosophy program, you study philosophy of mind and philosophy of science and uh, logic, right? And then you probably study the history of philosophy from Plato to Heidegger if you're in a continental philosophy program. And if you're not, you study from Plato to Enlightenment, and then you go on to talk about phenomenology and then analytic philosophical tradition. But usually undergraduate program in philosophy around the world, when you look at it, is usually... Now you have this environmental philosophy in the fourth year after you cover the entire uh, basics of the history of philosophy. And so it, it's almost like providing this branch of environmental philosophy on top of all the other things that are, you know, the orthodox philosophical pro program. But it, you, your book seem to be suggesting that we need to rethink this whole um program. That is to say, you should teach philosophy yeah. of yeah. nature yeah. I in, think, in I the think first year. Really, you basically. really put your finger on it. Yeah. 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 It's not mm -hmm. so much that we should graft this branch onto the tree once it's solidly planted and, and cultivated to, you know, an unmovable, large, great oak tree. Um, but we should rather um, graft the traditional philosophies onto the main trunk of the care of the earth. Mm -hmm. It's, it's that serious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think the ways in which theology study or religious studies are conducted or a philosophy is conducted, and you can just, um, you know, maybe we should use philosophy because I'm a philosopher and you're also a philosopher. Um, do you think the ways in which philosophy is taught is responsible for this sort of negligence of the um, marginalized other which is nature. Um, it, it, yeah, it's, it's easier for us to actually, you know, blame this industrial revolution and the ways in which this 
I don't know how the economic system is set up and how the politics is incapable of controlling the economic system and how the philosophers is just standing on the side and criticizing how things are done. But at the same time, we are not really teaching philosophy programs in such way that we can highlight this interconnectedness of different understanding of earth from you know, Anglo-European philosophy to modern Greek, Mexico, and Japanese philosophy, for instance. So I, I, I'm, I guess my question is rather far-reaching, but do you think, how do we, so I guess much more practical questions, how do we actually start grafting that question of, of this care of an earth to current programs that we're running in academia and beyond? I think even if you talk to the lay, lay philosophers outside of academia, public intellectuals, they do talk about ecological problems and how the philosophy of food and philosophy of vegetables, and I, these books are becoming popular, especially in Belgium. Um, but I'm wondering, is it solving the problem or is it just it's another branching out to this sort of uh, specializations that are really not doing the job they should be doing? Hmm. Well, I mean, the, um, the ideal answer is that we need a... We need a, a serious um, a philosophical revolution. Um, <laughs> serious philosophical it, revolution. Okay. Mm-hmm. When I um, this last semester, I taught a course in the grad school at uh, Kyoto University on ethics in the in the Kyoto School. And um, the first day, uh, talking about the notion of ethics and what it means. Um, at some point, um, I mentioned a variety of problems as well as uh, the problem of the earth and singled that out as important. And the initial reaction of the students who were all writing their thesis on, on philosophers, Japanese and Western philosophers uh, specializing, they all wondered if, if that was really an essential part of the, of the program, really an essential part of modern ethics, or is it not just so answering to headlines or uh, an appendix on, on concurrent pop ethics response to uh, the, the questions that are circulating among ordinary people. Is it really a fundamental philosophical problem? And I was, I was a little shocked that the, the question even came. I, I didn't really find a single supporter um, at the beginning to think that this was um, the question. It sounds alarmist. It sounds conspiracy. Uh, like another conspiracy theory, but um, um, so the, it convinced me more than ever. We really need a, a total revelation. We have to begin with um, a different set of questions um, than simply the question. To, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, sometimes I'm wondering, right, that the the discussion of this sort of care of an earth or care of nature is formulated in a such way in a philosophical vocabulary that we have lost this sense of nature or earth that is rich in these resources for insight um, rather than natural resources to be taken advantage of or the object of scientific knowledge. So we just you know, determine the intelligible structure of the world as an object and then do away with it and put them under our control. So even when we talk about care of nature or care of an earth, it seems our language is somehow contaminated with this centuries of combat between human civilization and nature, that there's sort of a mistrust 
that that sort of care is even possible. Or even when we frame the care, there's an element of carelessness or some sort of this antipathy toward nature in this language. But do you feel that just talking about this care in earth in the central part of the philosophical program that would be able to alleviate? Or what does that revolution look like? Does that include um, overhaul of the language that you speak about nature? Uh, I think, um, yeah. Uh, the, the current approach seems to be that we um, ask the questions or we take the questions that are being asked about the fragility of the earth and, and human responsibility for it and we use the tools that the history of philosophy have given us to answer those questions. But I think there's a shift going on, which is to use those questions as a way to criticize uh, the history of philosophy. And this two-sided approach to the history of philosophy, using it to respond as part of our tradition, to respond to new questions coming up, and using the new questions to criticize history. This was something that... Um, that the neo-Kantians, I think, especially with Windelband, introduced back into the philosophical curriculum, that the history of philosophy is actually philosophy if it's done right. And I think, um, re- in a sense, the way in which he redid the, philosophy, the history of philosophy was through um, the search for meaning and cultural patterns of meaning. And so I think um, the same thing could be done with rewriting the history of philosophy in terms of the care of the earth. And what one of the things that would do is expand what we understand by philosophy, um, uh, even what we understand by Western philosophy, because there are whole traditions in the West in which nature plays a much more important part um, and not just a subsidiary, ancillary part um, in, in uh, the shaping of, of, of minds. And now we look upon this as esoteric, but yeah, we have to bring the esoteric uh, above to the surface. In the same way that the the, myst- the mystical tradition, which was hidden for so long, is now above board and, and being recognized and uh, being used more actively by theologians rather than being persecuted and condemned. I think there's a whole um, tradition of attitudes, not not that they're, they're going to answer the financial and institutional problems that are creating that's another thing altogether. What philosophy does is it changes our way of seeing. That's all. That's all it can do. I yeah. see. One of the things that you did in this book is to bring in this um, Japanese philosophical concept of nothingness, which is the you know the signature move when you read, for instance, the famous group of thinkers called the Kyoto School. And you interpreted this uh, notion of nothingness as connectedness. Um, and I'm a specialist of Tanabe, and I hate to say it, I'm a specialist, but I'm, unfortunately in academia, you have to be a specialist of something. <laughs> so I'm a specialist of Tanabe. And you, you, you can feel the very strong connectivity between your take on this nothingness and his interpretation of nothingness. And, but I'm interested in your take on philosophy or nothingness because it seemed to be introducing something unique to the Kyoto School philosophers. My question to you for your use of the concept of nothingness, is this, is this, uh, could this connectedness in, in your term be a positive one or a negative one, or could it be both, or what you're proposing is much more one side or the other? Yeah, uh, I think um, 
Tanabe's idea of um, absolute mediation, in other words, <clears throat> feeling the pressure to define the absolute, he didn't define it as a thing or as simply as a nothing. He defined it as that everything mediates everything else. There's a little hint of that in Nishida uh, when he spoke of time and space as a kind of continuity of discontinuities. These, these uh, to me, are the equivalents of the revelation of the revolution that Heidegger brought about when asking the question again about being and losing our sense of the mystery of being. These are ways of looking at the mystery of nothingness. And I take this to imply that there's a fundamental and unbroken fact of sheer connectedness, which is necessary for us to speak of disconnections and misconnections. So awakening to this fact of sheer, unassailable connectedness is what the notion of nothingness aims at. So the, the highest metaphysical value is not being, which always, by nature, involves becoming and change. Everything is impermanent. Huh? But it's the fact that in the midst of this impermanence, there is um, a connectedness that only becomes um, visible in the uh, world of being and becoming. So it's not a metaphysical denial of the world of being, but only a realization that the disconnections and misconnections that make it possible for beings to be where they are and to change over time, that these aren't ultimate. The ultimate reality is the fact of sheer connectedness, which was there, um, it's there in our cosmos um, from one end to the other. And so I think, yes, it's a, a very positive thing. It's difficult to give a positive meaning to the notion of nothingness. It uh, either sounds like it's simply a negation of being or like a form of nihilism. Um, but um, that's just um, a disease of the English language. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do, you, do you think that this sort of um, fundamental connectedness that you're talking about in this book um, gives this sort of like indestructible hope or some sort of, um, how should I say, it, it feels like, so you're saying that all these abusive connections where, you know, the master-slave dialectic in the Hegelian term or very intimate controlling of the one that is taking advantage of the other. These are also a kind of connectedness, but it's, we can say, misconnectedness or abusive connectedness. It's not intimate, positive connectedness. But you're saying that even in these connections, um, there are, there is this fundamental connectedness that enables that kind of um, misconnectedness or abusive connectedness. Does that imply there's a sort of a future that, regardless of the fact that the human civilization seems to be incredibly and intricately, complicatedly disconnected with natural world, has a hope um, from your notion of? Connectedness. Um, I, I think as um, this is one of the most interesting things about nothingness and one of the most upsetting, I think, for Western philosophers who study it is that it is not really ethical. Um, even a bad, a bad connection is, um, is nonetheless a, a connection. Um, and even misconnection, in a sense, is, is a connection. Uh, connections can be, can be tattered, but they, they can't ever be broken as the as the poet says. So I think that it's not ethical. Secondly, I don't think it's teleological. 
I don't think there's any way to say that it's going anywhere. So we, we can't have a kind of Kantian third critique about, um, about the notion of connectedness. And this is something that the Buddhists um, are, are happy with, but that the Western tradition, especially the Western Christian tradition, is unhappy with, where everything has to be uh, ethical so that it can be judged. Um, and all of being also has to be teleological, teleological so that it's not purposeless. Um, is there any it hope to, to come from that? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it seems to imply that even in the environmental activism, that aims at this sort of a harmonious utopian world in which the human and nature become one with each other. To this connectedness, it seems irrelevant or something different from what this connectedness is uh, implying. Is that true? Yeah, I don't think you can you can argue from the notion of connectedness to the fact that we should um, we should take better care of the earth. Um, when when the human beings disappear from the earth, or if the earth is is transformed in a way that human beings can continue to live there. The, nothing has been lost as far as <laughs> right. you know, connectedness That's, goes. Yeah. It's uh, not teleological yes. in the sense of anthropological te teleology, basically. Yeah. yeah. Anthropocentric right. so, I mean, teleology. Yeah. The, the concern for ecology, even though we like to say that we don't like the notion of environment because environment talks about um, uh, a world surrounding some center and human beings are at the center and it shouldn't be human beings that are at the center. That's the problem. Even though we like to talk in those terms, the fact is, when we talk about care for the earth, we're talking about care for an earth where human beings can survive. And that's when ethics and tele teleology come in. If you don't really care about the survival of the human species, then you can't really care about ethics either. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Yeah. That's absolutely true. And it, uh, but this connectedness also has this sort of some sort of uh, ethical implications in a sense. Maybe some analytic philosophers would like to call metaethics, and continental philosophers would like to call the philosophy of religion in this connectedness that exceeds this human ethical teleology. And there is a sense of connectedness that we have to pay attention to, yes. regardless of yes. the fact that some yeah. of them are negative yes. and positive. Basically. I was talking about yeah. a high metaphysical pr principle, but as soon as you talk about um, connectedness in, in the human world, as soon as the human world comes in, yes, then absolutely, religion, philosophy, ethics, teleology, all these things um, become critical questions. No, no, I have no, no doubt there, yes. One of the um, historical concepts in East Asian and Japanese philosophy uh, is this notion of soku, um, you, which you translate it as in. And um, I would like to end this interview with this very detailed, specialized question on Soku, but it introduces the, this massive question. You have translated this Soku as in, and some specialists, including Tanabe, trans has translated this term as as or qua. Um, I think they are different versions of this intro, intro, uh, uh, inter interpretation of the soku. Some people translate it as immediately as. Now, my question is, does this concept introduce the problem of uh, negative connectedness? Um, because it seems to say that the soku is both positive and negative, right? Um, so that's one of my question. But the second question is, this, does this logic 
of in that is indicative of the connectedness of all things in the world and possibly of this porosity or seepage to beyond or below, whatever you want to call uh, the divine transcendence or divine transcendence. Does this notion of um, in imply some kind of uniformity or unification? Um, especially Tanabe wants this. And, and I think some, to some extent, I think he was having the difficulty to stay away from the problem that he was posing himself. This sort of um, uniformity or unification that we can see in this soft power philosophy that has a tendency to make this connectedness, like your connectedness with the specific your surrounding as the model in which we try to understand the world. So I think it comes back to the first question of that it's not um, methodologically feasible or sound to graph this branch of environmental philosophy as additional to the trunk of this big tree of the history of philosophy program. But it, it seems to do that, right? That once you introduce this one concept that can explain the older connectedness, that concept implies your personal relation to your surrounding. And it seems like it contracts this concept of connectedness. So how do we deal with this sort of seeming contradiction between the two positions of connectedness and Soku? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think Soku is um, uh, a way of thinking. Um, and I think it's a way of thinking that uh, the Kyoto School of Philosophers made conscious but was already present in much of their own tradition. And what I mean by that is this. It's, it was easy for me in the tradition in which I was raised to think of judgments as involving is or is not. And if there was a conflict between the is and is not, and that it seemed to both be and not be at the same time, then the conflict gave rise to a third judgment in which we could say is again. So the Hegelian model, the... Um, um, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, or it's not actually Hegel's, it's something we put on Hegel. It's a very, very Western Western way of thinking. Whereas the Soku says that um, any judgment um, always entails, entails, uh, logically speaking, its opposite, um, the death in life, yes in no. I think the Japanese style of pottery this uh, called Kinski is a good a, a good image of how Soku works. Um, uh, Soku as an as opposed to the word is or the word is not. A Soku is a term that carries both at the same time. This um, Kinski is um, goes back to the 15th century art of um, creating beauty by repairing broken teacups. So the broken things create something new and more beautiful than the original. So a lacquer is mixed with gold dust, and it's used to fix the pieces back together again. When you look at the finished product, these veins of gold, they show all the wounds, and they also show their healing in a way that a smooth glaze could not. They give value to the, to the finished composition, at the same time as they um, they highlight the fragility of the pieces of its origins. So what you hold in your hands is the restoration of a broken past, an image of 
the temporary nature of all, all our handiwork, all our ideas, intersecting with the desire to overcome it. It reconnects time, which moves from one fragmentation to the next, to this irrepressible but always uncertain longing for repair. The Soko is, I think, like this gold-dusted lacquer. It's not yours, but it makes the idea of yours possible. So um, let, let me give another example. Um, that's, that's one side of it. So negative connectedness, uniformity. But the other side is <clears throat> Tanabe um, stressed um, his metanoetics, his turn to ethics, um, stressed its connection to the uh, Pure Land Buddhist idea of other power. And, and Pure Land Buddhists have had mixed reactions to Tanabe's take. But one thing that I learned from it, um, which is interesting to me, is that the distinction between self-power and other power is not a distinction between opposites at all. As if you can choose either a funda- as a fundamental option, either to let your life be ruled by other power when self-power come to its limits, or to simply trust in self-power. But self-power is an illusion. So even in the most private um, decisions, in the most private projects of your life, there's always a crystallization of the world and the people around us. We're always a point at which the world connects in a unique and uh, uh, way. So only as a crystallization can we speak of conscience and enlightenment and responsibility and memory. But when other power is made the opposite of self-power, when divine power is made the opposite of, of human power, it becomes a grander ego to which one must submit. So what we've done when we make it an opposite is we make other power a super self-power. But other power is essentially relatedness, essentially connectedness. It's not a generator of principles or a particular truths to live by. You can call it the all-compassionate Amida or the all-powerful God of creation. It's not truly an other power unless it's free of the illusion of a detached, disconnected self that uh, transcends the rhythm of our lives. Wow. Yeah. That is, that is, and that sort of connectedness can be the sign of restoration of the whole after the brokenness. So it can go through this process of healing and destruction in the beginning. So we could have this sort of mistrust or misconnection between us and nature, but somehow it can be connected to the whole just because we go through this restoration process together. And that's the kind of um, artistic representation of soku or practical um, application of soku. Fantastic. I think these two questions on connectedness and soku will generate... um, Another sets of books. Um, I'm, 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 you, I'm, I'm aware that you have already written the, the book on. Uh, you have to remind me the um, civility, right? Um, ah, yes. Does that in, in, in relate to this concept of soku to some extent? Uh, well, not so much. Um, actually, I wrote that book during the um, the pandemic. Um, as a response to all the anger and even the righteous kind in order to <laughs> renew my faith in yeah. 
to renew my faith in the basic goodness of human beings. So, <laughs> in, the, in the midst of the pandemic, yeah. Yeah, so uh, like you, um, I, I suppose um, I have so many more notes in the margins of books and so many more outlines of talks than I'll ever be able to carry over into print. But I also found in cleaning up my room scraps of paper with things that I had clipped from other writings. And as I began to sweep these all together and sort them out, I found um, a bunch of material that had to do with renewing faith in human nature. And that became the basis of my little book, which I called In Praise of Civility. Um, it's, um, I can't call it a philosophical book at all, but um, I had you sent a copy, so I hope you find something in it. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I'll read it and uh, call for another um, polite invitation to this interview. I'm pretty sure. Oh, Jim. that would be fun. I'm having <laughs> enjoying it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this is this is fantastic. I think I, th I think we touched on so many uh, methodological issues for philosophers and specialists of religion, uh, as well as academics that are um, suffer from tendency to specialize and sort of tunnel vision, whilst the whole reality is upside down in the pandemic. And um, you know, younger generation is definitely interested in this restoration of earth and environmental issues, and this is one of the most strongest political voices that are taking place to shape the world politics, but somehow in an intellectual field, we have a tendency to put on the side and maybe you can choose as one of the electives. Um, I, I think this book has made it clear that we need to turn the tide around to respond to what's actually happening in the world and demonstrate our healthy connectedness to the world. Um, I hope I'm sum summarizing this discussion all right. Well, I um, um, I feel flattered that you take such a positive attitude to the book. I think, like everything, <laughs> uh, when it's written, yeah, well, I, maybe I maybe in the, the future see the flaws <laughs> more clearly. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I, I, in the future you might have to look at my marginal notes, and I'm destroying your book, and I have to piece it together like a kid. <laughs> yes, That's also yes, possible. Um, definitely, it, definitely. This has been great, Jim. Um, since we are approaching the end of the interview, I'd like to ask you about your plans for the future. Um, I'm pretty sure you've been oh. working on, you know, hundreds of projects uh, in your life, but in, I, I know for sure that you're always working on a couple of books, at least like five books oh. at the same time, all the time. So um, <laughs> yeah, please share maybe like a two or three uh, important oh. projects that you're working on and you like the world to know about. Um, well, actually, right now, um, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on the idea of, of self-transcendence as a common ground for philosophy and religion. Self-transcendence is one of those terms that's been taken over by psychology and is almost never used, strangely enough, um, in, in philosophy. But I think this idea of getting over yourself is not just a psychological problem. It's a deeply philosophical and religious one. Um, I think you can look at all of philosophy as self-transcendence, beginning with logic and passing over into ethics and metaphysics. And what I want to do is to question this perennial flat earth idea of a causal reality centered on human beings and the essential nature of particulars and replace it with a cosmic one in which everything folds back on everything else. So self-transcendence is overcoming 
this idea of um, uh, an, uh, what do I say, um, a metaphysic of being. Um, so I want to go, I want to do this through connectivity and relatedness and see the encounter with the, the nothingness of everything as an intersection of time and eternity. As the flow of the past to the present halted in its tracks right now for a fleeting moment, the moment of eternity is as Kierkegaard called it, and as the Japanese philosophers found so attractive. And I think there's something here that Christians and Buddhists, for example, share, despite their different ways of approaching subjectivity and ethics. So again, the idea of self-transcendence as a common ground for philosophy and religion. And I have so many notes and so many little short voice recordings that I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to put it all together. And it's one of those questions that I wished I had asked um, 20 years ago when I had 20 years to write it. <laughs> now you have to actually transcend yourself then and put that all together into a single format. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to that project. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, good luck with this massive project of, of, of your life. And I'm very much looking forward to reading the book as well. And, and I'm pretty sure you'll be frequented by the interviewers um, at the New Books Network in the future and me including included. Um, so thank you so much for take, talking to us about your book and Japanese philosophy today, Jim. Thank you for having and me. Thank that you, everyone. Great fun. Yeah, it was a fantastic. It was a great pleasure. And we will do this again for sure. Um, and thank you, everyone. This was our discussion with Jim Heisek, who is the author of Of Gods and Minds in Search of a Theological Commons. See you next time.